Hebrews 8, 1 to 13. Now, the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. But when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. But he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I'll make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Let's be seated as we pray. Father, still our minds and our, our, our hearts. There's much that races through them from a morning or a week like this, from just the fact that we are people and our minds wander. Still us so that we can really uh, focus and hear your voice through your word. I pray for the ministry of your spirit. We, we collectively ask that the spirit that is within us would be using your word to cut and to heal and to grow and to comfort and to encourage and help us to understand. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was little, I loved listening to Paul Harvey on the radio. I'm not so old. We had other things besides the radio, too. But I loved listening to Paul Harvey. He was, a, he was a master storyteller, famous for his tagline, and that's the rest of the story. Paul Harvey was brilliant in many ways. But perhaps his greatest ability was the way he was able to build a sense of anticipation as he moved to the climax of his biographical stories where you found out who he was talking about. 
He kept all of us on the edge of our seats as we listened to every detail, anticipating that one bit of information that would make the story complete. Our passage this morning functions in a little bit, uh, a little bit like a Paul Harvey story. The chapter, chapter 8, begins a story that runs all the way through chapter 10, 18. And the author, God's Spirit, inspired the author of Hebrews to kind of build anticipation as it moves towards a compelling climax at the end of chapter 9 and the beginning of chapter 10. So our chapter particularly is, is kind of that introduction to that kind of mounting story And it builds anticipation for us in three different ways. The first is a fairly straightforward way, just by introducing key themes that are going to be continued throughout this story from 8.1 to 10.18. Three themes, tabernacle, covenant, and sacrifice. So we're going to see those in chapter 8, chapter 9, and chapter 10. But second, it it teases us with verse 3. Sometimes you're trying to tell a story and build, you put a little tease in early on. And verse 3 is a tease for us. So in verses 1 and 2, it tells us that this priest that was talked about in chapter 7, we have that priest, and then it talks about him in not the earthly tent or tabernacle or, or temple, but in the heavenly tent, the heavenly holy of holies. But then verse 3 says, for every priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it was necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. It it tells us that Jesus must offer a sacrifice, but the thought seems a bit incomplete because it just ends there. It, It doesn't tell us what he offers. We expect what follows, verses 4 to 13, somewhere in there to fill in the blanks, but they don't. Verses 4 to 13, all they do is prove that Jesus' sacrifice was superior, but they never tell us what exactly Jesus' sacrifice is. I think this is the most Paul Harvey-esque element of the passage. It leaves us curious. What is this sacrifice? And it builds a sense of anticipation, which will continue to mount as you move into chapter 9 and into the, until you finally get the end of chapter, the the second half of chapter 9, where finally we start to find out what this sacrifice is. Now, if you don't catch that as you're reading it, you miss a really important element. For all its talk of tabernacle and covenant, This chapter is ultimately pointing to a history-changing sacrifice. So we have to read this passage as wetting our appetite, building our anticipation for the rediscovery of Jesus' sacrifice. So everything we're going to do this morning as we move through this passage and try and understand it, God is trying to wet our appetite, saying, man, all this is true. If all this is true, what must this sacrifice be? I want to rediscover it. I want to see it afresh. So I saw, we saw chapter 8 is going to introduce key themes. 
It whets our appetite for the discovery of Jesus' sacrifice. And the third way it builds anticipation, like, like a Paul Harvey story, is this. It shows us the shadowiness of the shadows. It shows us the shadowiness of the shadows. What in the world am I talking about? Let me explain what I mean. Look at verse 5. There's this reference to shadows. They, the priests in the old Levitical system, serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. The Old Testament system, the Mosaic system with the tabernacle and then the temple, with the priests who ministered there, with the sacrificial system, all of that, that system, that covenant, was a shadow pointing forward to a greater reality. It's important we not confuse the shadow for the real thing. And and this passage, chapter 8, shows that the shadows are actually shadows. It shows us the shadowiness of the shadows. That is to say, it proves that the Old Covenant and its system were shadows. And what's interesting is it does that from the Old Testament itself. From the Old Testament itself, Hebrews 8 proves to us that the Old Covenant system was only ever designed to be a shadow. And it proves that in two ways. Chapter 8 proves that in two ways. It proves it by examining the inauguration of the Old Covenant in Exodus 25. And it proves it by, the examination, by examining the announcement of the new covenant in Jeremiah 31. So the inauguration of the old covenant, Exodus 25, and the announcement of the new covenant, Jeremiah 31. For the bulk of my sermon, I'm just going to be looking at those two main points in greater detail. Really trying to understand those two proofs. But now at the outset, I just want us to see that this chapter is all leading up to something bigger, right? It's a Paul Harvey story. It introduces the themes of tabernacle, sacrifice, and covenant. It whets our appetite for rediscovering Jesus' ultimate sacrifice, and it shows the shadowiness of the Old Testament shadows. So, If you're reading along in Hebrews and you read chapter 8 and end there, you fail to hear the rest of the story. Our chapter is paving the way for what we'll see in the second half of chapter 9 and the first half of chapter 10. And that's the backdrop we have to bring to this sermon this morning. So with that on our minds, let's examine the passage itself in greater detail. We'll do what I said I'd do. We'll examine the two proofs that the old covenant system was merely pointing forward to Christ and his sacrifice. And proof one comes from examining the inauguration or the beginning of the old covenant, which we see in verses 4 and 5. So look with me at verses 4 and 5 as I read it. It's talking about Jesus here. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. 
For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. For the past, uh, I think it's five summers, Stephen Briggs has run a soccer camp for little kids. My kids have participated. Well, each week as the club ends, they end with a scrimmage. Now, what the kids do during a scrimmage is far from what real soccer looks like. There are only three or four kids playing per side. The goals are small, and there aren't goalies. Out of bounds isn't really a concept. And the level of play is, well, let's just say it, uh, it resembles a drunken herd of buffalo chasing a ball around a field. But even though it pales in comparison to the real game, it's actually carefully patterned after the real game. It's obvious that Stephen has designed his club to prepare the kids for the real thing. Now, nobody would be silly enough after watching a real soccer game to prefer watching Briggs Soccer Club, unless it's your kid, and then you do prefer that, but... But at the same time, Briggs Soccer Club plays an important role in preparing the kids for the greater game to come. Now, if you get that, I think we probably all do, if you get that, you get what God was doing with the Old Covenant. It was never meant to be the main event. It wasn't designed as the attraction It was designed to prepare us, spiritual toddlers that we are, to prepare us for the real game. It laid out a basic pattern that we would need once Christ came. And God didn't want us to miss this point. So look back. Exodus 25, go there. That's page 66 if you're using the Pew Bible. Page 66, Exodus 25. God's meeting with uh, Moses at Mount Sinai. This is when the covenant is inaugurated. And look at chapter 25, verse 40, which is the verse that's quoted in our passage. You'll recognize it. Exodus 25, 40. God says to Moses, And see that you make them, these are elements that will be in the tabernacle, and see that you make them after the pattern for them which is being shown you on the mountain. Now now look ahead uh, just a little bit earlier in verse 9. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, so you shall make it. Or look in chapter 26. And verse 30. Then you shall erect the tabernacle according to the plan for it that you were shown on the mountain. Or 27 verse 8. You shall make it hollow with boards. As it has been shown you on the mountain, 
so shall it be made. Do you see the pattern in those verses? The pun was intended. God is making a point for all of us, all of us, for all time to see the tabernacle and all of its, all of its elements are based on a pattern that God showed Moses on the mountain. I know some of you are taking up the challenge and reading through the Bible this year using the Bible reading plan we had provided. And so you just finished reading Exodus. Or if you're like me, you're just finishing reading Exodus. Did you notice as you were reading Exodus the exacting detail with which Moses was to prepare and build the tabernacle? Why are those details so important? Why are they such a big deal? Why are they given so much attention? We're told here why. It's because the tabernacle, and eventually the temple that the tabernacle was based on, the tabernacle is a scale model of something bigger and far more significant. God's heavenly tabernacle, with Christ as the high priest, with Christ's blood eternally atoning for our sins, that is the real deal. That's the big deal. But God didn't show Moses this glorious big deal, real deal. What He did is to liken it to architecture. He didn't show him the final heavenly building itself. He showed him the blueprint of it. And then He told him to go down and build the tabernacle based on that blueprint. But just in case anybody was going to start to think that this tabernacle or the temple or the whole sacrificial system and the priest that ministered in that tabernacle, just in case anyone was going to think that that itself was the real deal, he told us four times no less, he tells us, that this was simply a model meant to reflect something far superior. You see how it's like Briggs Soccer Club? It's patterned after the real thing, but it's not the real thing. And Exodus 25 makes that abundantly clear. It proves, it proves the shadowiness of the shadow. This is just a shadow. This is just a model of something greater. So now go back to Hebrews again. With this understanding, it actually begins to make sense of what's going on in our passage. So like just think of verses 3 and 4, which might have been a little confusing as you read them. Verse 3, For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. In other words, he's saying, if the pattern that God laid out included sacrifices, if God included that in, in the pattern, then of course Jesus had to make a sacrifice. If Stephen's league is going to include scoring goals then of course the real soccer game includes scoring goals. And then you have verse 4. Now if Jesus were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. It's saying, but if, if the earthly priests are simply shadow priests serving a shadow system, of course Jesus wouldn't be part of that. Why is the priest of Melchizedek, which we saw in chapter 7? 
It'd be like if Ronaldo came, Ronaldo, Ronaldo, why can't I say it? Ronaldo, thank you. I don't know what's happening to my tongue. The letters are right there. Ronaldo, there we go. (laughs) I've been reading with my toddlers. I guess they're not toddlers. They just read like toddlers. They don't all. They're good readers. It'd be like Ronaldo spending all his time in Briggs Soccer Club. It'd get it completely backwards, right? That's not to prepare him for this. This was to be a shadow pointing to that. So the Old Testament... The Old Testament itself shows us at the very outset of the Old Covenant that it was merely a shadow pointing to something greater. God wanted to make it abundantly clear to any careful reader of the Old Testament that the tabernacle and the sacrifices and all that covenantal system that went with it, were simply shadows pointing to something greater. And so he didn't just make the point at the inauguration of the Old Covenant, which we saw. He also did it by announcing in the Old Testament a new covenant. In the Old Testament, before Jesus came, before he came and inaugurated the new covenant, it was announced that there would be a new covenant. Covenant. And that's the point of verses 6 to 13. So I want to read those with, with, if you would read them with me. The, the bulk of what I'll be reading is a quotation from Jeremiah 31. But look at verses 6 to 13. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law into their minds and write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people and they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest for I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Are there any computer geeks in here? I'm going to say two words that are going to give you the heebie-jeebies. Windows Vista. I'm not even a computer geek, and I know that was a bad operating system. So it wasn't surprising that just two years after the much-heralded release of Windows Vista, 
Microsoft was hawking a completely new version of Windows, right? The much better Windows 7. You don't announce a new version of something unless there was something at fault in the old version. In the case of Windows Vista, it had a lot of faults. So the author of Hebrews takes us to Jeremiah 31. And he argues that if God needed to promise a new covenant, it was only because the old covenant had some fault to it. It wasn't the real deal. Now, unlike with, the, unlike with Windows Vista, the fault of the old covenant was actually designed into it. It was intentional. And it wasn't a fault with the system itself. I don't know if you caught that. So in verse 7, it says, it, it says now if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for the second. So we know there's a fault. But look at verse 8. For he finds fault with the system? No, with them, when he says, and then in the middle of verse 9, for they did not continue in my covenant. The fault in the old covenant system was an operator error. Our sinful, rebellious orientation was the problem. So I want you to get this. The old covenant system was actually carefully designed by God to reveal the flaws in our hearts. It was designed to show us that our hearts were wicked. It was designed to show us that evil persisted in our hearts. It was carefully crafted by God to reveal the ongoing nature of the guilt we carried because I need another sacrifice day after day. I need another sacrifice because my guilt is ever with me. It hasn't actually been dealt with. Now, though this was by design, nonetheless, a system which only reveals our sin and our guilt is inherently, and by design, flawed. Which is why God announced a new covenant, a covenant that Christ would ultimately bring. And he did so in Jeremiah 31, which is the passage quoted at length. In fact, in the book of Hebrews, which is chock full of Old Testament quotations, this is the longest quotation in the whole book. That shouldn't surprise us because Jeremiah 31 is fascinating. I mean, it was written 600 years before Christ. It's written while the Old Covenant is in full gear. And yet it calls for a new covenant. And it gives three very specific and profound ways that the new covenant is better than the old. We see it in one of them in verse 10, one of the reasons in verse 11 and one of the reasons in verse 12, respectively. So look first at verse 10. The new covenant, unlike the old covenant, can change the heart. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. We're told that the new covenant 
can transform us deep within our hearts, within our minds. It can make God's Word the DNA that directs us. According to Jeremiah 31, in the New Covenant, God will transform our sinful, crooked hearts into hearts that love His Word. Pretty much, pretty much all other religions are outside in in their approach to change. And that includes forms of Christianity that aren't based on the Bible. They're outside in in their approach to change. So here's these behaviors that you just need to do. Start doing these things these outward behaviors, and eventually that change works its way into your heart, outside in. But Christianity is different. It's inside out. It begins, the beginning point is when we trust Christ and He changes our hearts because because what happened is Christ actually did accomplish something on the cross. He broke the power of sin, the power of sin that held this world under its sway, that holds holds every human under its sway, that power Jesus broke by paying the penalty for sin. And so when we trust Him, our hearts can be changed. Our natures can be transformed. We receive new hearts. Our desires change. Our interests change. Our attitude towards sin changes. The very control center of our being changes because of the victory of Christ. Now, I know that some of you here this morning are not followers of Christ, and I'm, I want you to know we're glad you're here. Stay and come every week. It doesn't matter what your background is, what you believe, what you think, where you disagree with us. We're glad you're here. Watch us. See what we do. Check it out. But you're probably here because you're curious about who we are, what we're about, or we're, you're exploring maybe Christianity. So just in light of this, can I encourage you to think about one thing? Why is it that sin, or whatever you want to call it, the crud inside you, why is it that it has power over you? Now, I'm not saying that because I have some profound insight into you. Oh, you walked in, I've had my eye on you. You're a bad, bad one. We're all bad, bad ones. And that's, that's, that's why I'm saying it. It's true of all of us. We all want, there's something about us that all, we all want to do good at a certain level. We want to be good people. But despite our desire, we keep going back to that same well, same destructive well. You see, sin grips you. It holds you. The question I want you to think about, why is that? How do you explain that? The Bible explains it by saying that Adam, when he rebelled against God and disobeyed God, unleashed the power of sin and darkness, a great poison that contaminates every heart. So we are under, the the Bible says we're born under the power of sin, dead in our transgressions. It says that 
hardwired into our natures, into our hearts, is an overall rebellion against God that we can't escape. But the Bible also teaches that Jesus' sacrifice on the cross broke the power of that sin. He defeated sin by paying its penalty. So here's the point of what I'm saying to you. If you can see that sin has power over you, then it might be worth examining the Bible's explanation of how that power can be broken. And the Bible says the power can be broken when you actually entrust yourself to Jesus. Because it says then God actually does something on your heart and mind, the control center, the base of who you are. God can give you a new heart. His, his law is no longer something external that we're trying to force in there and unsuccessfully doing it. It actually is something that comes inside of us and shapes us. It's transforming us. That's the first major way that the new covenant is better than the old. It deals with our hearts. Something the old covenant couldn't do. And verse 11 gives us the next way the new covenant is better. It's better because everyone who's part of God's covenant people will be a believer. Look at verse 11. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. In the old covenant, you were part of God's covenant people because you were descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob, whose other's name was Israel. Israel. All who were descended from Israel were God's covenant people. But there was a problem in that. You see, some of the people who were part of Israel loved and trusted Yahweh, but others did not. So think of the position you're in if you're one of those true believers in Israel at that time. You feel this strain and this pressure because your brothers, who are part of the covenant people of God, who are part of the ones supposed to be reflecting what God's like to all the nations, they're not even trusting and following Yahweh. They might think they are giving lip service to it, but they're not. Or some of them just outright pagans. And you're looking and saying, no, the Lord, he's good. Know what he's like. There's this tension. But in the new covenant, the covenant people of God are all those who love and trust the Lord, regardless of whether they're descended from Israel. So the covenant people of God will be those who know the Lord. And that way you no longer have to tell your brother, know the Lord, because everyone who belongs to God's people will know Him. In the old covenant, some of God's people didn't know the Lord. In the new covenant, all of God's people will know the Lord. And so in that way, the new covenant is better. And then verse 12 gives the final description of how the new covenant is better than the old. It's better because it can actually deal with sin. Look at verse 12. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. 
Now, in the Old Covenant, God forgave people's sins because they offered animal sacrifices. But God was being unjust in forgiving their sins at that time. He was unjust. The scales of justice were not met because an animal's blood couldn't really pay the price of their rebellion against God, their treason against God's good kingdom. Only their own blood could pay that price. An animal, no matter how perfect, was insufficient to stand in. But God wasn't actually unjust. You'll be relieved to know. The New Testament explains that God was able to forgive them then only because he knew what Jesus would one day do. He, Jesus, would be the innocent stand-in for them. Jesus' death as a perfect human who'd lived a perfect life was able to stand in and pay the price for everyone's sin, past, present, and future. Now, if Jesus hadn't come and died on the cross then God couldn't have forgiven people's sins under the old covenant sacrificial system. He wouldn't have done it because it wouldn't have been just to do so, and God is always just. But in that old covenant, as God had designed, the animal's blood was a shadow, right? It pointed forward to something. It pointed forward to Jesus' blood. And so those who made sacrifices then were forgiven because of the sign, because of what the sign pointed to, not because of the sign itself. I know that's kind of, we're getting to a lot. Okay, Old Covenant, New Covenant, sacrificialism, how it all works, how they're forgiven then. I want to make this point. I'm saying all that to make this point. For all time, past and present, It is the new covenant in Christ's blood that allows us to be forgiven. It's the new covenant in Christ's blood that allows God to be merciful toward our iniquities. It's the new covenant in Christ's blood that allows God to remember my sins no more. Some of you came here this morning weighed down by the burden of your sin. Perhaps it's some terrible sin that you committed at some point way in the past and its repercussions still haunt you, keep you from sleeping at night at times, cause all sorts of deep, profound, weird emotions in your heart. Or perhaps it's something you've done more recently. Maybe it's some really big sin. Or maybe you just walked in burdened by some small sin. Not that we should be ranking our sins. But something like the way you treated a good friend. The way you disciplined your children. Or what you were looking at on the internet that night. 
But I know there are people here weighed down by their sin. Regardless of why you are weighed down by your sin, I want you to hear this. If you have entrusted yourself to Christ, if you're under the banner of His new covenant, God will remember your sin no more. You see that? It's plain as day on the pages of Scripture. God will remember your sins no more. He will be merciful towards your iniquities. The price, the price for your sin has been paid. You are forgiven. So just take that weight off your shoulders and lay it on Christ. And that's something that the old covenant could never do. So here we have chapter 8. And as plain as day, it's showing us that the shadows are simply that. Shadows. Shadows meant to point us to the substance behind them. God makes it clear that they are shadows when He inaugurates the Old Covenant in Exodus 25. And God makes it clear that they are shadows when He announces the New Covenant in Jeremiah 31. And as you dig in and as you see these different shadows and what's going on in chapter 8, you're going man, there must be something really great about that sacrifice. In fact, I couldn't preach this sermon without talking about that sacrifice because that's what it's doing. It, there's got to be something great. If he planned all this, if he designed all this back then to point for, I can't wait to hear the end of chapter 9 and the beginning of chapter 10. These shadows in chapter 8 tell a bigger story, a story that climaxes at the end of chapter 9 and chapter 10. These shadows point to what Christ has done for us. They point to Christ, history-altering, world-shaking, and for many of us, life-changing sacrifice. Shadows, shadows, shadows. But, But, even though they're shadows, even though they're here just pointing forward to something greater, I don't want us to leave today despising the shadows. Because the shadows themselves are wonderful. Think about it. I mean, when you start to think about just little details like Exodus 25 and 24 and 26 and all those different patterns or the four times it's a pattern. God created a whole system, a whole system to show us our sin and how much we need Him. God created a whole system hundreds of years before Christ would come that modeled what was coming. So that when we In our weakness, as we often do, question. Am I really believing the truth? Is Christianity true? Is this, there's all these other religions, how do I know? We have something solid. Something undeniable. That God laid out to bolster our faith. God took the time 
to create a whole system that prepared our hearts for Christ. The book of Hebrews, as we've been preaching through, is compelling not just because it tells us about Jesus. Hebrews has been compelling because of the ways it utilizes the Old Testament and has us get our fingers dirty in there to tell us about Jesus. You see, studying the shadows, if we see that there's shadows pointing us to Christ, studying the shadows is good for our souls. It strengthens our faith. It helps us understand Christ all the more. Yes, they are shadows. And may we never lose sight of what they point us to. But let us also thank God for these shadows.